John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, this is Steve. So, obviously I love movies. I mean, if five years of doing The Cinephiles doesn't prove that, I don't know what will. But something I love just about as much is food. In fact, I subscribe to way more food podcasts than movie podcasts, including KCRW's Good Food, Dan Pashman's Sporkful, and my current favorite world-renowned chef David Chang's podcast, The Dave Chang Show, and its fantastic spinoff, Recipe Club. Now, that's a lot of hours I spend listening to people talk about food. But the thing is, a lot of those foodies also love movies. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard famous chefs say that the single most accurate movie about working in a restaurant is Ratatouille. That's right. For great chefs, the Pixar animated film about a rat cooking haute cuisine gives the best representation of what working in a restaurant is really like. Don't believe me? Well, you might want to check it out for yourself by going to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream Ratatouille along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, right now you could be listening to us answering a question from a patron who wanted to know if we thought studios checking diversity boxes, no matter how well-intentioned, could end up damaging films. Needless to say, John and I had a lot to say on that topic. Oh, and one more thing. You didn't think we could do a Pixar movie without inviting our favorite animation expert, geek buddy Michael Vogel, back to the show. So that's Checking Boxes on Patreon and part one of Ratatouille with special guest Michael Vogel this Friday on The Cinephiles. How can we claim to represent the name of Gusto if we don't uphold his most cherished belief? And what belief is that, Mademoiselle Tatou? Anyone can cook. <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello! No, hello everyone. Uh, I am uh, John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host and voiceover artist here in Los Angeles, California. Very excited to walk into the culinary world of Pixar with this film and to welcome our guest, Steve. Yes, I am, uh, you know... 
people who have listened to the show long enough know that we're not going to go in to do anything having to do with animation without our resident animation expert, Truth. writer, producer, executive, geek buddy, Michael Vogel. Welcome back to the Cinephiles. Hey, guys. I'm really excited <laughs> to be here. I wanted to be like, hey, but I didn't want to do it by myself. That's fair. That's fair. I, I, I perfectly understand that. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I've I've never never gotten to say a. I've always it's, wanted to. You've been on the show. You could have said it, right? I've never been on the show. You never been on the show? We gotta have Steve on the show. We gotta get Steve on the show. We've done some Geek Buddies Cinephiles team ups and crossovers, crossovers but right, they all right, tend right. to be on the Cinephiles they side were on of the things. Oh yeah, so, good point. So we'll okay. have to have a reason to have Steve come over and then just really just so yeah. he can go, hey. I mean, it, it sounds so exciting. Although it is, it has been funny listening to the way you guys have gotten really good at getting the A in sync over yes. over the internet, which is at first was clearly hard. Yes. yes. Uh, I, re- I realized I, I had to pace it out at certain moments. Yeah. I blame Shannon. <laughs> so the film I think we've hinted at that we're doing is Pixar's 2007 film Ratatouille directed by Brad Bird and this happens to be a Patreon pick one of our biggest supporters and favorite people in the world Brendan Marr suggested this and I would love to hear from him what he thinks of Ratatouille yeah so we are very very happy to welcome Brendan Marr one of our biggest supporters on Patreon yeah onto the cinephiles and I should also say, if you're wondering what the odd noise is, uh, it's Brennan's uh, ventilator. That's what we're hearing. Brennan, welcome to the Cinephiles. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. It's great to have you. You've been one of the most consistent, best supporters of our show, and we really, really appreciate it. I'm pretty excited to talk to you about this movie. I would love to know why, out of all the Pixar films, did you choose Ratatouille? Well, it's my favorite Pixar film. And it's also one of my favorite movies ever made because it really speaks to me as the portrait of an artist. Mm. Mm-hmm. This idea that Remy is a frustrated artist in his own way as a chef and that he uh, really lives his dream and gets to, to make his art. And as unconventional as it is, it makes a big splash. And that has always stood out to me as someone who is a frustrated artist myself. <laughs> well, what what is it about his journey that stands out the most to you when you watch the movie? Is there a scene? Is there a moment? Is there an interaction that really mirrors something you've experienced yourself in your life? Well, the scene in the beginning of the movie when he and Emil are in the house trying to get the herbs, mm. or, uh, the seasoning, the on the television is Chef Gusteau explaining his philosophy. And Remy says, pure poetry. I've had those moments where mm. whether it's watching an opera, whether it's watching a movie, or it's just that moment of this is perfect art that just speaks to me in my heart. And I think that it just is so, it is, that's me. That is so much what I am like. 
I'm curious, you know, Gusteau has the philosophy, anyone can cook. And I'm curious if, A, do you think that applies to all art and all artists? And B, do you agree with that statement? Do you think anyone can cook? Well, I like what it says at the end of the movie, where Ego, in his review, says, not everyone can be a great chef, but a great chef can come from anywhere. And I think that applies to art. It's not everybody can make great art, but a great artist can come from anywhere in the world. That's what I think too. Any station of life. Do you do you have an artist that you admire, respect, or know very well that kind of is the living embodiment of that? This is an animated film, and of course, a fantasy film. But is there an artist in your life that you admire that kind of represents that idea that an artist can come from anywhere and create incredible art in any uh, field they choose to be in? Oh, my gosh. Well, that's a big one. Um, hmm. I definitely think Akira Kurosawa oh, great is point. to me that artist. He came from a war-torn country. He saw horrendous things as a kid. Hmm. I don't think they were particularly wealthy. He experienced some, some sadness in his life. Right, his brother's suicide, yeah. His brother's suicide, yes, absolutely. And yet became, in my opinion, the greatest director of all time. Ooh, that's a great story. I, 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 can't, I can't argue with anything you yeah. just said. Um, I'm curious, do you have a favorite moment in Ratatouille? Oh my goodness. Um, Eco's review at the end <laughs> yeah. is a great moment because I think that in a way that is speaking to art and maybe speaking to film criticism in a way. Mm. Um, film critics who reject things that are new. And we certainly have seen that with like the pushback against the MCU. Mm and other attitudes towards certain kind of movies. When my philosophy is a great movie is a great movie. That is my philosophy. You can even say the product itself can come from anywhere, right? A great piece of art can come from anywhere, not just from mm. any artist, but from anywhere, right? So if you even yep. elevate it out of the art, artist with Remy being the representation of that, you could mm-hmm. say... Um, what you can make, what you can create um, can come from anywhere. So even from the MCU, we can get something like Black Panther or we can get something yeah. like Avengers Endgame yeah. that a lot of people might argue in 20 years are instant or classics rather. Yeah. Um, and uh, so even from the comic book genre, which has been a disregarded genre. And Steve, you and I yeah. talked about the mafia genre, the Italian mob mm. genre the Godfather having that coming out of a genre that was really overlooked or pushed yeah. to the side or not seen as an A level genre, these are the things that can come out even in a, in a um, media kind of way from uh, places where you don't expect them to come out of, not just artists coming out of that. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point, John. That I mm. had not, I'm applying it that way is really really interesting because mm. it's there's so much there's so much where. 
what you know whether it's george lucas doing sci- science fiction or what you know where right. there's where people dismiss a genre dismiss a medium and then suddenly someone shows no great art can come from anywhere yeah that's mm-hmm. wild wow well, b- both the the two of you together just blew my <laughs> mind um well you should see us on the outlination that's <laughs> true that's true <laughs> we go well, at each other all the time <laughs> well and this is in addition to the fact that you've been such a great supporter of the show yeah what what What's so cool is that you're cinephile in your own right and you have and you bring so much to us. And in fact, you're not just a supporter of our podcast, but you have your own podcast. Do you want to mm-hmm. tell a little bit about what that is? Yeah, I do a podcast called Page Turners. They were not. <laughs> you can find it on Anchor and Spotify and Google and Apple. And I just talk all things Star Wars. Star Wars is that franchise that speaks to me, I think, more deeply than any other work of art as kind of a whole. Maybe not the individual films, per se, but the idea of Star Wars as a whole. Well, and I could say, having been on your show, man, I learned a ton. So there's a t- yeah. there's a ton that Brennan has to teach you, and a, a lot of great ideas he's discussing on his podcast. Did you ever get around to do how Star Wars conquered the universe? I haven't yet. It's it's still sitting on my list. Yeah, uh, but uh, no, I I really enjoyed when you were on my show, and you were a, you were amazing yeah. on my show. Too. Yeah, I know. Thank you very much. Yep, this one, how Star Wars yep, conquered the universe. That book is yeah, so good. Well, Brennan, thank you again for coming on. Thank, thank you for you all your support. And for those of you out there listening, you if you reach the baby, you're a star level on <laughs> Patreon, not only do you get to hear our shorts, not only do you get to suggest a film, but you actually can come on the show just like Brennan and we can have a real conversation yeah. about a movie that you love. Powerful words from Brennan Marr. I love Brennan. So, and, you know, I always ask, how did you come to this film? And I think... I might have the answer for all three of us because I think we all saw it together. You are correct. Um, And I'll tell you what's so funny is I know what the date that we saw it was, which is the date that it premiered June 29th, 2007. You want to know why I know that date? Because at six in the morning that morning, I was in the Glendale Galleria lined up to buy the very first iPhone. Wow. This movie came out on the same day as the iPhone. And the reason I remembered this is I remembered that we saw it in Century City and then we went to eat somewhere after. And I remember showing Sarah Calperthwaite the iPhone and all of you guys, because no, none of us had had one and everyone just going, oh, my God, because it, and we know now that was, in fact, the future was that little phone. That's wow. insane. I mean, I, I did know that we all saw the movie together. Uh, I yes. did remember that, but uh, I did not remember the iPhone detail. And also, like, the a, a world pre-iPhones just sounds so weird now. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, well, it's so great because I remember showing, like, here's how you pinch the photo bigger and here's how you slide something. And everyone just touching these things because it was so crazy in 2007, that technology. Yeah, um, man, that's weird. Isn't it? That's so um, weird. But I've seen Ratatouille many, many times since. It's it's one of my favorite Pixar's, and in particular, it brings together my love of movies with my love of food. So it works out real well for me. <laughs> uh, I have a little bit of pre-production, not too much. The original idea for this film was from Jean, Jan Pinkava, who came up with it in 2000 and developed it 
all the original concept art. He had character designs. He had the basic story, but they never quite put him on as the sole director. In 2004, they brought Bob Peterson on as the co-director with him. Mm-hmm. And then it sounds like Pixar lost confidence. And right after he finished Incredibles, they took Brad Bird right off of Incredibles and put him on as the director of Ratatouille. Wow. And it sounds like he made some very, very smart and simple changes, including killing killing off Gusteau and making the parts of Skinner and Colette much bigger, creating all that physicality with Linguini, redesigning the way the rats looked. A lot of that stuff came from Brad Bird, and he's such a good director. Mm. Mm. Yeah, most of the time. Yes, most. Yes, most of the time. He's awesome. And yeah, I mean, there's that this happens a lot. I mean, you know, animated movies uh, go through such a long development process. And, you know, sometimes a lot. And this was the case with this one, like just the ideas were kind of all over the place. I mean, a lot Mm. of the things that ultimately we love about Ratatouille were there store, you know, a story about creativity, a story about prejudice, a story about following your dreams. Like those were all pieces of the movie, but they were super fractured and they weren't really. Uh, gelling and Brad Bird came in and like all the th- for all the reasons you said like getting rid of Gusto, uh, finding like the humor and the physical stuff so that kids would really like the movie like he's the one that really made it the movie that we all know and love today. What's so interesting and I know we've talked about it before is that as much as our feelings about Pixar are so warm and fuzzy, it is a place that's tough. It is mm-hmm. a place where they're continually striving to make it better. As Orson Welles once said in The Third Man, right? They had a piece in Switzerland 500 years. All they got was a cuckoo clock. So, you know, <laughs> you've got to sometimes just because it's just because it's a place um, that is, you know, has a pretty awesome campus. I've been to that campus. It's incredible. I would love to work there. It doesn't mean that the demands aren't strong because to keep that campus humming the way it does, you've got to be successful consistently. And uh, it pushes you and, and tests you in so many ways and ta- and seeing the behind the scenes with some of these filmmakers and the amount of times that they have to defend their decisions and discuss their decisions and all those different departments they have to run it through. It's incredible to watch. Yeah, I, I think the not good enough, that phrase, mm. not good enough, is just such an important thing in filmmaking is like, OK, yes, this this works. Can we make it better? How do we find ways to make it better? And it, sometimes it takes having your ideas repeatedly challenged to get there. Just like cooking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Just like cooking. And also like when you look, (laughs) when you read um, Ed Catmull's book um, about Pixar, uh, Creativity Inc. um, And, you know, they talk a lot about the brain trust, which Mm -hmm. is something they kind of built there that has been since used at like Disney animation and other places. But it's literally, I mean, it sounds horrible, but it also sounds amazing. Like when you're working on a movie and you're the director, you go into a room with all the other directors, all the other creative heads, everyone who's doing all the cool shit and you show them the dailies, you show them the animatic, you show them everything, you go through stuff. And then they rip the movie apart because the most Mm. important thing is the movie being good. Like to your point, we all do have warm and fuzzy feelings about Pixar and Pixar movies at the end result make us feel warm and fuzzy. But the process of Pixar is not let me make you feel really good about yourself. You can do this. I believe in you. The thing about Pixar is we're making a movie and the most important part is that this story has to be great. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that means feelings get hurt. Sometimes that means you really get challenged and like you're constantly going in and saying, okay, this is what I think is good. Now tell me all the reasons this sucks and let's fix it. It's so funny. My experience, and I'm sure you've had similar experiences of sometimes you get that note and the note hurts. And sometimes the note's not even the right note, but like the emotional experience of, 
getting it and then fighting to make it better. Like there have been lots of times where I've been real angry when I went to bed and then I got up and made it better, you know? Yeah, I just had dinner with uh, an executive that I'm working with currently on a project. And about a year ago, when we first started working together, uh, I got some major notes on a big aspect of this project that I'm working on. And I was super mad, like very angry. There might have been some raised voices and some screaming. Um, And we had dinner. Um, we had dinner, um, when, once we were allowed to actually meet up in person and restaurants were open again. And I finally admitted after like two martinis, I was like, so I was really mad about those notes, but it all turned out really better. Like once you forced me to sort of come up with a solution and I did come up with a solution, even though I like was cursing your name the whole time and (laughs) it's better now. And that's, that's, that totally happens. Like, you know, I, I, I often say this to people, it's like, when it comes to the creative medium and when it comes to, you know, writing and animating and creating, like there's never one right answer. There's lots yeah. of right answers. There's lots of wrong answers right. too. But like, so when someone challenges you, even if you hate the note, uh, you can often find a solution that still retains the thing that you wanted to retain and uh, addresses their note. And it's hard. And sometimes you don't want to, but um, you know, it's, it's, that's part of the fun puzzle piece of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Well, and sometimes, you know, depending on who you're dealing with, sometimes the note is actually the, the note is a symptom of something else being wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the thing that they're pointing at actually isn't the problem. The problem is you didn't set up that thing well, or the problem is that doesn't make sense in terms of the character. And you need to go back to some earlier thing to fix, mm-hmm. to to make the whole thing work. Or there's like sometimes it's a flavor that you that that you didn't give enough of or gave too much of and then you got to pull it back to find the right balance you know well one of my favorite stories in creativity inc it's not ratatouille specific but it's pixar specific and it's brad bird specific so i feel like it's apropos for our conversation um is that when i he bet was i know doing, exactly what you're i bet i know the it story is. I, and i think i think <laughs> i like mentioned this story if, if either on geek yeah. buddies or on here on another episode i think i brought it up but i think it's worth repeating because it's so perfect for what we're talking about which is during incredibles in the brain trust they had the animatics and there's the scene where bob comes home comes home late after going around with frozone and like putting out the fire and like the building collapses and he comes home and he gets caught by helen and they have this big fight and it's the whole fight that's like one of those key fights where he's kind of saying like you know the kids are average like you know that the, they the kids are being rewarded for being average and he doesn't like the way that they're being raised and we should let them be super and we should let them run and they get in the big fight and uh and ellen yells and helen yells She's like, it's not about you. And they were in the brain trust and everybody was like, whoa, dude, this is really intense. Like he is yelling at her. It looks like he's about to fight her. Like this isn't okay. And Brad Bird was like, this is like, this is like the important fight. Like they need to have this fight. And they're like, well, it is not working. You need to do something like he needs to tone it down. This is coming off really aggressive. And he kind of, to your point, Steve was like, he went home, he was angry he was like, they are wrong. I know they are wrong. And he was watching it and he was like, this is the way it needs to be. And then he realized that the reason that it looked so aggressive, the reason that they were reading it the way it was, because like Bob is huge in animation. Like he's this giant character and Elastigirl is like this tiny, slight character, except she's elastic. And so mm-hmm. he just reboarded the entire scene. He didn't change any of the dialogue. He didn't have them re-record anything. But when she yells at him and says, this is not about you, she stretches up and gets bigger and bigger and bigger just so she's taller than him. And he showed the scene to the brain trust and they're like, oh my God, it's so great. You totally re-recorded it. It's not as aggressive now. And he was like, no, but I did fix it. I did address the note. And that's what I mean is like the note right. that they gave was 
correct in a way, but it wasn't exactly right. And uh, he found a way to keep what he wanted, but also address their concerns. And it's actually awesome. And when you watch the movie now and she raises up, you're like, yeah, of course, that's what you would do. That's great. That is the story. I knew that was the story you're going to tell. And it's such a it's a perfect example. And there's this weird experience. And Mike, I don't know if you've had this, but it's happened to be so often where I introduce an idea for a character just to have something for them to do, just to you know put them in some clothes or have them have a hobby, but didn't have any meaning to it. And then later on, that random thing I introduced is the solution to a problem I face later on in the script. You know what I mean? It's, oh, yeah. Where it's like, it, and it's so weird when it happens. It's like, oh, I didn't know I was going to have this problem, but I introduced that, that that this person has, you know, carries a big suitcase and now I have somewhere for them to put the body or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just so random how that kind of thing happens. Oh, yeah. That happens all the time where like when you're writing and you create you have a, you have a need for a character, whether it's like you need a character to do some specific thing or somebody outside asks you to create a character. Like I had a whole thing on the show that I'm working on right now where somebody was like, we need a character that's a fashion designer. And I'm like, OK, so here you go. Here's a fashion designer character. And I just did it because somebody asked me to. But then you sort of keep coming back to it later on. And so you're like, oh, well, now I need a fashion character and they're going to do this. And then like that thing that you just did because somebody asked you to or you just exactly. Something out of your ass actually becomes like something that you use in story or becomes a problem, like something yep. that you use to solve a problem. It's always great. Yeah. By the way, I just had an image because I was thinking about the brain trust and these amazing directors and that they're all tearing apart each other's work on every single thing. And I just had this image. Can you imagine the, if the, if actual film directors were doing this, not that these aren't actual films, but like, can you imagine like in the seventies you have, Coppola, Scorsese, Spielberg, Bogdanovich, all together, Hal Ashby, ripping apart each other's films before they would let them go out. Well, I mean, certainly that was something that they did. Yeah, but not like this. I mean, no, they did, I, yes, I don't they know. Did I wasn't there. I well, don't know what they I mean, they were certainly uh, Coppola and then they would all you know get what, together, right, work actually. together. Yeah. Yeah. It, they all had they discussions all I mean, like this. Yeah, Spielberg would have Lucas come over and watch stuff. Lucas had Spielberg yeah, watch yeah. Star Wars. I, I will That's say right, the difference right. the difference is that it was more of a camaraderie and not an actual integral part of their production process. Like Pixar builds that mm. in as part of the actual right. movie making process. Whereas these right. guys were like, I we there's a mutual respect level. We should right, all right. share in each other's stuff and give each other feedback. Was uh what's his face part of that process? Um John Lasseter? Was he the yeah. in the room in the of brain course trust? He was. Uh-huh. Yeah, he was. He's like the he's like the Coppola of that in in a way. Then for sure, because Coppola oh, was sure. like the grand the grandfather of those of all those younger guys for whatever reason. Yep. Yep. Uh, would you like to get into go to Paris and get into Ratatouille? That's it. That's all we got for pre production. How That's did all pa- I got, how, yes. how did Patton come on to the show? We don't know how Patton got cast or anything. I don't have it. I'm sorry, Joe. I feel like I've let you down. I, feel, I don't have that information. I'm, oh, you know what? It's not all about writing. Sometimes the voiceover matters too, ladies and gentlemen. All right, I'm 100 percent agree. I'm going to do some work on that next time. All right, anyway, let's go. I just don't say, have that information. I will say that. I mean, I do know that you know Patton Oswalt, and, I, and I'm sure this is part of the reason why he came to it. That he was, he is a total foodie. I mean, he's oh, like, yeah. oh, he, is he really? He, oh, okay. He's a total foodie. I mean, he loves oh, good food. He he appreciates food. So for hmm. Whether it was somebody at Pixar that knew this about him or knew him personally and had this thing, like him playing Remy is definitely a perfect role for him insofar as like that's his that's his jam. He loves to talk about good food. Well, I also want to say before we start, that's the brilliant part of casting Patton Oswalt, right? He's an underdog guy. 
Yeah. And you can and if you're going to do the voice of a rat, right? You most people have, you know, an issue with rats for sure in real life. So if you're going to do the voice of a rat, you want to find someone that the audience is immediately going to hear that voice and feel a connection to, an affinity for, uh, connect to an underdog status type of thing. Plus, you know, Pat is not the, in the best shape, so you feel a relatability to him. He's human. He's just like you. He's a regular guy. And that's what's always been the gift of Patton as a, as a performer is you feel like you could have a drink with that guy, even though he's extremely talented. So having him voice Remy, you immediately are in the uh, feeling the Remy sympathy and empathy for that character and what the journey it's going Going through it's so it's so important to cast yeah. perfectly, especially with a character that difficult to physically necessarily connect to as a rat. So it's brilliant. I t- couldn't I couldn't agree more. And it just mm. you just reminded me of one more thing mm. I wanted to say, which is that uh, as I'm a big foodie too. And one of the podcasts mm. I love is uh, Dave Chang's podcast, and he's obviously well known chef from Momofuku and Major Domo in L.A. and He's had lots and lots of chefs on, and I can't tell you how many times Ratatouille's come up. <laughs> is that the, and every single one of these chefs say <laughs> this is the most accurate movie about what it's like to work in a restaurant of any film ever? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I know top that. Top to um, bottom. I know that the directors spent a lot of time at the French restaurant French Laundry, and they spent time in the kitchen, oh. and like they really kind of like they they, they talk a lot about it uh, about how. Uh, they were surprised. Like, you know, one of the things, this is one of the things that always stuck with me is they were like, they spent a whole day in the kitchen and most of the chefs just used like spoons mm. uh, and not a bunch of other things. Like they were just like, they were stirring with spoons and they were scooping with spoons and they just always had a spoon in their hand. And one of the directors was like, you know, I always, like if I was just doing this on my own and we didn't actually observe this, I would have had them with spatulas and tongs and doing all this stuff. But because everything is so fast paced and you don't have time. It's not like cooking at home where you can really just yeah. relish in it. Like you're on a schedule and you're getting shit done. And so yeah. it kind of changed the way that they wanted to like sort of create the kitchen. And so it is like, it's really not only in that respect, but also, um, just from an art direction standpoint, the way that Gusto's is like the out the uh, the seating area where the guests sit is like lush and deep reds and golds and these murals on the wall and it's like the ultimate French experience. But then you go back into the kitchen and the art direction is very like white. Uh, a little bit mm-hmm. like bleached out like and even like when you look at all of the pots and pans and stuff and this is where Pixar is amazing like every dent and discoloration and scratch that's in mm. all of the stuff that makes it look really used is a choice like they didn't go get old props like they built something and then had to go out mm. of their way to make it look old and lived in and all of that yeah. stuff makes it feel like a real kitchen experience which is why chefs are so uh are so complimentary of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as I was watching it today, uh, Lindley walked by, she does not watch animated films, but she knew immediately I was right at Tui because it's the one that she's watched. And I told her, I said, there are things that Colette says in this movie that you have said to me in the kitchen. Uh, Cause you know, she's a former chef. Uh, my girlfriend is, and has worked in numerous kitchens. And she's like, yeah, because she's telling the truth about yeah. how the hell to run the kitchen. And I was like, damn, you know? So yeah, you're right about that. Many chefs uh, feel it's the most realistic depiction of it for sure. So the film starts off learning about Cousteau. Although each of the world's countries would like to dispute this fact, we French know the truth. The best food in the world is made in France. The best food in France is made in Paris. And the best food in Paris, some say, is made by chef Auguste Cousteau. And we hear about his philosophy, anyone can cook, and that he was the youngest chef ever to earn a five-star rating. His book was on the top of the bestseller list. Of course, 
Anton Ego doesn't quite agree with this anyone can cook idea. Amusing title. What's even more amusing is that Gusto actually seems to believe it. I, on the other hand, take cooking seriously. And no, I don't think anyone can do it. <laughs> and that is, of course, Peter O'Toole. I love the design of the character that he looks like, like a vulture. I mean, it's just a fantastic looking nemesis to meet right at the beginning of this film. First of all, Anton Ego is like one of the most referenced character designs in animation, just insofar as like huh. any time now that you are on any kind of show and you're designing any kind of character that has to be really uh, like a, any, a critic or someone who's really judgy, like you're like, oh, we need like that Anton Ego type of design. Like it's so perfect and it's so iconic that like it comes up all the time. And I also really love how with the beginning of this movie in the first 20 seconds you literally understand like the core theme of what's going on here because you get the gusto you get gusto's idea that anyone can cook and anton ego's idea that not that's not true and not everyone can cook and like even before we meet remy even before anything happens the core sort of debate of this movie is just laid out for you in the most simple fashion that you can find we hear rain and we fade in on this cottage and we hear like a scream and a crash. And then the camera pushes in on the window and out through the window crashes a rat underneath a book and goes into a freeze frame. And this is where we meet Remy. This is me. I think it's apparent I need to rethink my life a little bit. What's so interesting to me is that even though this sounds like the weirdest idea for a movie, and I remember when I first heard about it, you know, seeing the first previous, like, what to do a movie about what? But what's so interesting about it, it is it's such a classic I have a dream story. You know, my parents don't understand me. I have this dream that's outside of the realm of my family. Like, that's just classic. And that is what we're setting up here. And right in this first moment of what's my problem? First of all, I'm a rat. <laughs> like, yeah. One thing we should say is that this is a voiceover movie. And, mm -hmm. and that's another reason to cast Patton Oswald because he does such a great job narrating this film. Yeah. And we cut to like a little bit of what the life of a rat is. And I think they make a really smart choice to show a rat silhouetted with the music kind of dark and showing kind of a negative image of a rat early because that's what they have to overcome. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and I know they spent a lot of time trying to decide how much do we anthropomorphize these animals? How do we make them look? And I think they found a really good balance between making them rat-like, but not <laughs> making them creepy and gross, you know? Yeah, and I mean, when you think of the world of animation and how mice and rats have been personified in all manner of stuff, they actually ended up uh, leaning a lot on actually having them move, for the most part, in a lot of the movie, actually like rats. I mean, you could have mm -hmm. definitely mm -hmm. done this movie where they're all just like bopping around on two legs, uh, the whole, all of them the whole time, and very cartoony because you were worried about making them likable. But I think when you look at like the movements, even of Remy when he's scampering around like they really move like rats like they don't shy away from it and you're right at that very beginning bit like that you see the rat the way that we sort of the way that we sort of think of rats when we're like ooh gross um and then we instantly see them transition into the more likable rats like they come out of the shadows they crawl up into the garbage and you're like oh okay no they're actually kind of cute and i think <laughs> it does a really good idea a good job of getting you over that hump you're like hey it's almost like you're saying hey we know that rats are kind of gross to you, but look, they're nice. And they instantly make them characters. I think one of the smart choices they made was to not have the rat ringtail 
thing. Mm. They just went, that's just a little too gross looking. Yep. <laughs> We're not going to do the tales <laughs> that way. Um, and then we find out the next important fact about Remy, which is that he has a highly developed sense of taste and smell. Sugar. Hmm. Vanilla bean. Oh, small twist of lemon. Oh, you can smell all that? You have a gift. Uh, and that's Peter Sohn who plays Emile. I might be crazy, but this whole film feels like... And you know, Steve, you've given me the honorary status of uh, oh, Catskills Jewish comedian type. <laughs> this this feels like an old school um, Jewish comedy type vibe to it. Like old school cat. Even the voice that Emil does is very much like that kind of like sidekick. You know, the Art Carney type guy. Hundred percent. And 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 then the dad is like more. You know, obviously Brian Dennehy playing the dad, but it's he's more of you know kind of a judgmental, burly. Oh, I gotta please you. Oh, this kind of stuff. So it just feels like it's got that old school. Vibe vibe uh within the movie overall of the kind of back and forth they're having you know yeah i think it totally does they're definitely there's definitely that element of brian dennehy in a different in a different movie where they aren't rats it's kind of like what you can't be a doctor it's like no i want to be an artist it's like there's definitely there's definitely why can't you just do why can't you just do what everybody else is doing it's such a i mean it goes back to the jazz singer like it's like that you know it's such a classic theme um and the one thing we do discover is that because dad doesn't understand Remy at all, but Remy does stop him from eating a poisoned apple core. Right. And suddenly dad has a use for him. (laughs) No good deed goes unpunished. Smell everyone's food before you eat it. (laughs) Clean. Clean. That's right. Cleanerific. Poison checker. Cleanerino. Close to godliness. Well, and it's such a classic, like... (laughs) Dad's trying to give him something to, where he can appreciate and use his skills and thinks that this seems great, but it's not, it's not so great for Remy. <laughs> well, and it's actually, and this is where Pixar does such a nice job because it is, I mean, look, they're all rats and it may, it's really clear. It's like, well, you're, you're, you're not, you're a weird rat, but like, ultimately hmm. this is a movie where it's not like dad is an asshole. Dad's not a villainous character. Dad really just absolutely does not understand his son at all and ultimately this part of the movie this arc is about going from like not getting your son to really understanding who your son is yeah there's so much connection with that uh, situation you know my dad my dad had no concept of me being an art or artist or he was just like no go be a lawyer 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 this is what you need to do you first generation it's all of that right so the connection here the connection here is the lawyer john roca the lawyer is (laughs) I'm just a caveman. Your ways are strange to me. (laughs) But no, it's not that his dad's villainous. His dad probably takes some shit from the other guys about his like, you know, kind of uh, artistic son who flavors and and can smell the flavors and all of that crap. He probably takes. So he's trying to make Remy fit into the world of the rat world. Right. right? All right. Here's the usage for you. If you can't be a regular rat like everybody else. Let's do something good with whatever talent you have so that other people can appreciate you in our world. Kind of like that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer thing. Yeah. You've got this unusual thing. Let's find a way to make it work within our construct. Then they introduce another theme. And this is the one theme in the movie that I don't think quite mm. works for me, which is the we shouldn't be thieves yes. um, idea. And, it, and Remy is saying you shouldn't steal stuff, although I do love this line. It isn't stealing if no one wants it. If no one wants it, why are we stealing it? But this argument goes on to Remy basically saying, if I'm going to eat, I only want to eat the good stuff. Mm-hmm. And dad's just like, food is fuel. That's all it is. And of course, the good stuff is in the human kitchen. I know I'm supposed to hate humans, but... 
There's something about them. They they don't just survive. They discover. They create. I mean, just look at what they do with food. And Remy's in the kitchen, and there is Gusto, who's Brad Garrett, by the way. I always forget <laughs> that it's Brad Garrett. I always forget that it's Brad Garrett. It's such a different role for Brad Garrett. It's, yeah. like, he, it's great. He does a great job. Good food is like music you can taste. Color you can smell. There is excellence all around you. You need only be aware to stop and savor it. And we push in on Remy, who is now eating a piece of cheese. And as he eats it, we see what Gusto. It's a perfect visual and sound representation of what he just said. Because we see the color and the sound as he eats it. We see the color and the sound as he eats the fruit. And then he combines them. And this is the first moment, I think, of Remy creating something. But combine one flavor with another and something new was created. And he discovers this whole new experience right up until... (laughs) <laughs> there is this old lady <laughs> who sees him and he has to run out. I mean, I think this is why the movie works so well is because they very successfully look, I think chefs are artists. So I think it is correct, but you could have definitely done a movie that focused on, Oh, here's Remy. He's a good cook. Um, but by, by having chef Gusto talk about art and music and color and having this moment where he's biting into this stuff and you, you hear the music and you see these designs around him, like they're really taking Remy as a chef and elevating him to sort of a symbol of creativity period. And I think yes. that's what really makes this work. Like if you're a foodie, you love this movie, but I'm a writer and I draw and I relate to Remy. Like I think anybody who has a creative spark to them or who's ever had wanted to have a creative spark or has any level, you know, a, a thing that they didn't do professionally, but they love to do at home. Like I think you look at Remy and because of the way they sort of make this leap early on with what Gusto says and how he talks about cooking, it means that anyone who's creative automatically goes, Oh, I get it. I'm on board. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I always, I always think there's like a thing of there are people who can make the thing. But then there are also people who maybe don't have quite as much of that talent to really create something, but can really, really appreciate it Mm -hmm. and really uh, understand it and enjoy it in a deep way. I mean, just that's just what we're doing right here in our love mm. of films, you know, mm-hmm. is not that we're not have talents in each of our ways to, to that can make things. But but like part of it is just like you can appreciate that great meal, even if you can't cook it, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I can't cook for shit other than, you know, like re- to feed myself. Like today, I just made ground turkey with a little bit of bacon sprinkled in and some uh, uh, frozen uh, pasta. Whoa, I made it. I cooked Chef it Gusteau. Here yeah, comes exactly. Lindley always walks in and sees my food. She's like, I don't know how the fuck you live off that shit. I was like, it's just my food. I just need it to live. But food I always fuel. Food is fuel. Like I'm I'm the dad. Yeah, absolutely. But watching, I watch all these cooking shows and just marvel at the genius, the innate sense of understanding of the smells and the combinations and all those things. I could never in a million years understand that because I don't have that innate desire that when I smell something, oh, that could pair, I could pair that with this right. or I could pair that with that. So, but watching it, I can always appreciate great artistry, whether it's in the kitchen or in a film or anything else. So it's, it's always amazing and it's, it's a marvel to watch it. And Remy has found a mushroom. And he goes to a meal because <laughs> they want to find somewhere to hide it. And we're walking. And what I love about the Emil Remy relationship is that is what Remy says here. He says, he doesn't understand me, but I can be myself around him. And how is he being himself at this moment? He is walking upright. Mm-hmm. And this is that great balance between anthropomorphizing and having them be like rats, but also having them having him be a little less rat like. 
Yeah. And, yeah. and at different points in the movie, all the rats, um, you know, anthropomorphize and act more human at certain parts and more. At, but like what I love about this is they didn't just decide to have Remy walk on two legs just because they needed him to be cuter. I mean, they did to a degree and they wanted the audience to relate to him more, but they came up with like a perfectly yeah. sound logical reason. And so like, you know, I, I often say this, like when you have sort of a challenge, like you say, well, we want Remy to walk on two legs. A lot of times uh, you sort of just do it and you sort of just like, let's just get past it really quickly and just let it, mm. eh, the audience will go with this. But what I love about Pixar is they leaned into it. Like they literally have a meal be like, why are you walking like that? And he's like, I don't want my hands touching the <laughs> ground. If I'm like, he's like, and you're like, yeah, that given who this person is, given who this wow. rat is, this totally makes sense, but it allows them to have Remy stand out from the other rats right away and to act more human when they need him to. Uh, and it's totally justified. It doesn't seem weird because he has explained to us why he is the way he is and it works. Mm-hmm. And, and then we find some cheese and now Remy starts to create. That would go beautifully with my mushroom. And, uh, and, 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 oh, this rosemary, this rosemary uh, with, uh, maybe, maybe with a few drops from this sweet crap. Emil's just like, hey, let's just throw it on the pile. It's like, no, we can't throw it on the pile. We have to cook it. And how are we going to cook it? And we cut to them on top of the cottage at the chimney, slowly (laughs) turning his mushroom over the spit. Um, And I love Emil's slow sort of. That storm's getting closer. Hey, Remy, you think that maybe we shouldn't be so. Boom, hit by lightning. I think the part that's great about this and like what and a lot of stuff in this movie is really good at is that when you are a grown up and you're making an animated movie and you have the big themes and ideas you want to talk about. Um, But at the same time, at the end of the day, you're making a movie that parents are going to take their kids to. And you always have to find those moments that are funny. And in lesser movies, it's like you either have a you have a serious moment and then you have the really silly kid moment that is just like goofy and ridiculous just to be goofy and ridiculous. And what Pixar does so well is they know that they have to appeal to both audiences and they find the right moments. So to your point, this is a, this is the moment of Remy kind of being a creator. He's, he's trying something for the first time. And again, there's a story reason for this. He needs to cook it. How are they going to cook it? So they go up there and like, they have this great physical gag where they get struck by lightning. The hair is all standing on end. They're kind of smoking and it's really funny. So as an adult, you're kind of like more focused on the fact that, oh, you're like, this guy really is a good chef. He really, he made something and he's really happy with it. But as a kid, you're just laughing at how they look and it's super funny and it works on both levels. And of course, Remy then tastes this lightning-y food that he just made and decides that what it really needs is saffron. <laughs> One of the things I wondered, it's not a criticism of the movie at all. It's like, how could Remy have possibly tasted all these things? Like, how could he know? You know, there's, it's one of those sort of, this is what the movie is. Remy is a genius who understands things way beyond his experience the second he yeah. sees them. Yeah. Um, but so now we're going to head into the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And Emil is not a fan of this. <laughs> the, the old lady is asleep and he's searching through the spice rack for saffron. By the way, saffron is really expensive. So you buy Ooh. like like three or four threads for like 10, 15 bucks. Like it's really an expensive spice. Um, wow. So I'm impressed that this lady has some saffron. And then Emil finds out that Remy can read. Wait, 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 wait. You read? Well, not 
excessively. Oh, man. Does dad know? I think it is so funny. I, that line, it's so fun. It's a great, A, the, like, the, the flipping on its head that, like, the fact that Remy can read is kind of like an embarrassing thing as opposed to mm-hmm. like, you know, in art, in the real world where you're like, oh, I don't want to tell you this, but I can't read. And he's like, oh, my God, you read? Does dad know? <laughs> and, and, when, and the line of you could fill a book, a lot of books with things dad doesn't know. And they have, which is why I read. And I'm like, <laughs> it's just a great line. It's so good to me. It's, yeah. it's like a perfect line because it's it's like the. We only take what people throw away. Why are we taking what people throw away? It's like this perfect yeah. multi-twisted line that's really, really funny. And, of course, then we hear Gusteau's voice. Grape cooking is not for the faint of heart. You must be imaginative, strong-hearted. You must try things that may not work. And you must not let anyone define your limits because of where you come from. Your only limit is your soul. What amazing! It's just what you said, Mike. It's the uh, this advice to the artist. It's talking to the creative yeah. spirit in all of us. It's like you have this beautiful moment where you see how inspirational Gusto is, and then you just follow it up instantly with the information that uh, you know that Gusto uh, you know got a really bad review. Anton Ego caused him to have the star taken away, and he was so upset yeah. about it that he died. And you're like, well, that's <laughs> well, that's some shit. And by the way, there is a famous French chef who, when he lost his third Michelin star, or he had three stars, which is the maximum in Michelin Guide, Mm. and he lost one, he killed himself. Wow, my God. I mean, this is serious. This is serious stuff, um, (laughs) these stars. Um, I mean, and you'll hear a lot of chefs at this level, because I hear them on that Dave Chang show I talked about, Mm. about how hard it is to get from the first star to the second star and how almost impossible it is to get that third star. Wow. Um, I, there, there was only like three or four restaurants in the country that have the three Michelin stars. I don't know how many there are, but one of them is the French laundry, which is where they Mm. uh, was their inspiration. Also, by the way, the French laundry has been in the news in California a lot because that is where Gavin Newsom went to that party (laughs) and didn't wear a mask, which might cause him cost him the governorship. Yeah. Um, God help us all. It is a great restaurant. I ate there 20 years ago. It is, it, it is so expensive now. <laughs> There's the, I think now to eat at the French laundry is like seven or $800 a person. Oof. <laughs> yeah. Oof. Yeah. I can just order some Papa John's or get some Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, you know, the different needs, different needs. Different, I think. Yeah. yeah. D- just depends on the mood. Days. Depends on the mood. Um, and just as we find out about the death of Gusteau, I love how they do it too. The TV turns off and the image on the TV is replaced with the reflection of the woman who owns the house. And she (laughs) is not pleased seeing these rats in her house. (gasps) The thing I love about this woman, and it's such a, this is a no brainer for character design thing, but like when they designed this woman, her entire design is built around the fact that she can't see shit. Like (laughs) she, like, like, it's just so it's one of those fun things. Like her design aesthetic is you are blind as a bat because we need you to try and shoot these rats and Mm. her, you know, the giant glasses with the ginormous eyes, like it just cracks me up every time because you sort of instinctually know she's going to have bad aim. So as Mm -hmm. you get into this extended sequence, it's like her design and those glasses and those eyeballs tee you off ahead of time. And it sets up the joke visually without them having to say anything that Mm -hmm. then as she is shooting all over the place, you're like, it's just, it's just fun to watch. 
<laughs> well, and I love one of the things Brad Bird said is that in her day, she was a badass. She was like a resistance fighter yeah. in World War II and that she was really, really tough, but not <laughs> quite as accurate as maybe she once was. And she's just totally shooting up um, her her own house. And I always forget the the reveal that's coming up, which is that Emil is going up the chandelier and Remy kind of says, no, you're going to you're going to give away the nest. And then it ends up that as she fires up at the chandelier, the whole ceiling collapses. And there are hundreds of rats, including dad. They've been living up above her house. (laughs) It is. And it's, this is a really small moment, but I think it's an important one because I think that as much as like you like Remy from the get go, you know, there is this setup that he's, he kind of looks down on the other rats. Yes. I mean, he definitely, he definitely doesn't think highly of that rat life. And I think it's actually this really subtle but important moment that even despite that, like Emil is not thinking. Emil's like, let's just get out of here and go home. And Remy is the one who's like, whoa, 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 we have, we can't go that way. We have to protect everyone that he's protective of his family, even if they don't get him. And he doesn't think super, super highly of them, which I think is a very, very subtle thing. But upon multiple rewatches, I always am like, I think they put that there for that reason. And I think it's really smart on their part. I think that, yeah, I hadn't thought about it. I think you're totally right. Well, it also evens things out because they look down on him for yeah. not being one of them, right? In their minds, Remy is the one who's like lesser than because he's not like a regular rat. Whereas, and then Remy looks at them. And when he's him walking upright is the rejection of of that thing, right? You know, yeah. it's that old school story of like, I came from the hard scrabble life. Well, I judge all those people. I can't wait to run and be successful and not have anything to do with those people. And then you realize those people are actually the foundation and the salt of why you're able to succeed the way you are because of that. So you have to reappreciate that whole situation all over again once you achieve what you achieve. So yeah, I, I love yeah, it. These are both great points because I think it's like the, the big theme is the follow your dreams theme, but the smaller, but there's also the theme of know who you are yeah, and accept yeah. your own family, you know? Yeah. Um, and all the rats run. Remy goes back for the cookbook. <laughs> and then we get to exactly this shot. We started with the freeze frame and then we have this crazy escape. Did, did the rats plan this escape path in advance? That's my question. Oh, a hundred percent. That's yeah. what I oh, thought. Oh, a thousand percent. All of those boats are there in case <laughs> something goes down. Like this is yeah. rats, rats are survivors. And this is yeah. literally in a very subtle way kind of being like, yeah, they were ready for anything. They were, yeah. they, this, when this happened, like they had a plan, they have run drills. They knew where to go. <laughs> well, you know what that speaks to too, is that even though dad is an antagonist to Remy's dreams to some degree, it's, this shows that dad is awesome. He's yeah. a great leader of the rats. Mm-hmm. He's he's keeping all of them alive and makes it makes it what Remy wants to do make even less sense from their perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's important. I mean, uh, listen, there was there's a lot of there's a lot of versions of this movie where like the parents are shitty and treat Remy shitty because he's mm-hmm. our hero, and it's easy to make the parents right. the bad guys or like the, the you know whatever. And like you're 100 percent right. Like as far as like the life of a rat. Like Remy's dad is really good at it. Like there's a reason that they all survive as well as they do. And I think to your point, like having this escape plan kind of shows that like he knows how to take care of the family. And that's Mm -hmm. why the fact that his son kind of looks down on their way of life and doesn't want to do things the rat way and has all these ideas like, uh, you know, it it just he just literally doesn't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I never thought about it until this moment. 
as a generational story in the sense that, you know, the parents who worked the hard jobs or they're immigrants or they worked in the factory and busted their ass. And now the kid has an opportunity and sees the world differently because they have a different background and different education and they see the world differently from their parents. And so they're somewhat judgmental of the parental generation. Like, I didn't think about that thematically, but I think it totally fits. It totally fits. But what's really funny is I don't see that when I watch it. Like, I see a gay kid and his parent. Like, like to me, <laughs> sure. like, when I watch it, I'm like, oh, this is my son. He doesn't like the things he's supposed to like. He's not good at rat stuff. He likes mm. to do all this fancy stuff. He's kind of a sissy. He's kind of this. I don't understand him. And then meanwhile, Remy's like, I can't wait to get out of here and find the people who are more like me. I don't want to live this life. And ultimately, um, I think it's a lovely story about both sides, Remy on his end and his dad and the rest of the rat family kind of finding that balance where they do respect each other and do understand how to coexist. Yeah. It's so funny how the three of us with very different backgrounds and even different, I think we've all, we've all been Remy, the three of us, (laughs) you know, like in our own way. Cause like no one in my family is artistic in any way. Mm -hmm. And while my parents were supportive, they didn't get it. Like I couldn't Mm -hmm. talk to them about what I was doing really. Cause it just didn't, particularly my dad, my dad, none of, none of it made sense to him at all. Right. (laughs) You know, um, and that the sequence, by the way, of them in the water, she's firing down at them. It's really exciting. Remy on the book, get, getting off the book, struggling to catch up, almost catching up. And then we get into the sewer system. It's all really, really, really well done. And I feel like, I mean, I, maybe this is true of every Pixar movie, but this seems like, to me, a huge step forward mm. in terms of animation. Wet fur. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's <laughs> all the water and yeah. atmosphere. Yeah. Like yeah. like wet fur is hard. Uh wet fur is hard. Water is notoriously hard. I mean, it doesn't mm. look hard now because Disney and Pixar make water look so amazing. Yeah. But you know, all of the water effects combined with the wet fur having to look real and move in the right way and having this kind of like really dynamic action sequence. Uh yeah, like this is definitely um Pixar kind of showing off a little bit. Like look what look what we can do, guys. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that thing of the the animators pushing the technology and the technology pushing the animators that has continued to this day mm-hmm. is oh, pretty for amazing. Sure. I also think just a really minor thing, but uh, it seems so natural. But I do love the fact that all of the rats are literally saved by trash, and Remy yeah. is saved, and Remy is literally uh-huh. saved by Gusto. Like they right. all float away, they all escape in the same way. But it's a really subtle thing that, like you know, rats are all about garbage. Remy is all about cooking and Gusto, mm. and the thing that they float away on is literally the thing that is their life raft, thematically <laughs> as well as wow. physically. Great point. Great point. Um, and Remy, of course, loses his family and ends up alone with the book, hungry. And then the image of Gusto comes to life. If you are hungry, go up and look around, Remy. <laughs> the animated figment of his imagination of Gusto is a character I really love <laughs> in the movie. There's a take on this where you worry about Remy and his um, imaginary <laughs> friend, and what's the true. What's, what's the diagnosis I, for Remy? <laughs> because like, well, well, this imaginary oh, friend is concretely alive. Is all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. No, he is. But I do, you know, kind of Steve, to your point at the beginning about one of the things that Brad Bird brought in was the fact that Gusto died. That mm-hmm. there isn't a Gusto by doing that, and then I am a hundred percent sure that that one of the reasons was we're going to have this thing like. Gusto doesn't exist anymore except in Remy's head. So Remy, in effect, now is Gusto. 
Like yeah. he, he, he is this voice in his head, which is being personified by this cute little floating flying Gusto around him is literally Remy's subconscious, Remy's uh, inner, inner artist, whatever, but that he is channeling what he thinks Gusto would tell him, which is really just Remy giving himself his own advice. And this mm-hmm. is something that like, I, I guarantee you any other studio would never have gone for it. Like if, if the director mm-hmm. had gone and said, here's what I want to do. I want the main character to talk to this little imaginary chef um, who's just really a figment of his, like be like, kids aren't going to get this. This is too weird. And I think that they, not only do they do it, but they do it so well and it works so great. And John's right. Like on the one hand, you're kind of like, Oh, Remy, a little crazy. But on the other <laughs> hand, you're like, this is, this is so good because it allows one of when Remy's on his own, particularly, you know, if we didn't have somebody else there, he'd either be talking to himself or it would be silent, neither of which is really exciting. Um, <laughs> but having yeah. him be able to have this conversation where he can speak about his fears and concerns while at the same time giving himself a solution, it's way more fun and interesting to watch on screen. Well, and they do it so well. And the other, th- the other thing about it, man, this movie has a ton, a ton of exposition. Mm-hmm. There is so much exposition and you have you know, Patton Oswalt's voiceover explaining a whole bunch of stuff. And then a lot of these scenes with Cousteau are, wow. are expositional and you would think it would drag the movie down and it doesn't at all. They're all so much fun. Right. I think the voiceover performances is a big part of that. You know, they, of course, and I find it that they're, they're the, these rats, everyone else has a French accent, but these rats, I find that to be a fascinating situation, <laughs> That's a good but, point. But, but they have the back and forth and the back and forths are so interesting because haven't we all in our lives, no matter what path we walk down, we've all had those conversations with our inner voice and we recognize that that inner voice we're creating that inner voice. And so in a way, uh, that's what Gusto is representing. And even Gusto is so self-aware, the voice is, to say to him, I can only go as far as you let me go. I'm a figment of your imagination. He's doing all of that. So he's very self-aware of what he is for an imaginary thing. So I like that, that that's never far away from the interactions. You never right. believe that this is an actual full real thing. Uh, in terms of his character, it is a it is an imagine, imaginary thing for him, and they remind you constantly so you don't get too involved with it, which I think is brilliant. And Gusto encourages encourages Remy to go up into the mm. world, and I love that. And they kind of describe this as it's sort of the rat cam is like it's like a handheld or a steady cam that's following or leading <laughs> Remy as he goes up through the sewers, through the tunnels, through the rafters, in and out of the parts of the building. And one of the things I love that Pixar is so smart about is that. They give the camera a human characteristic because, of course, it's a computer. It could follow Remy perfectly, but they make it bobble. They make it yeah. lead him too far or fall behind him just like a human cameraman would. And it makes it all feel so much more real and interesting. Also, if you love your Pixar Easter eggs, you get a really great Doug from Up cameo here. That's him in the sh- kind of shadows. Yeah, the right? shadow, the shadow, <laughs> shadow of the dog. Shadow of the dog barking at Remy is uh, is Doug, <laughs> and he runs through all these little kind of Parisian things. A party. There's the the you don't have the guts gunshot, and then they're kissing. <laughs> there's all these little bits. A painter, and then he comes up the side of the building, over the roof, and comes up to the top of the roof, revealing Paris. Paris. All this time, I've been underneath. Again, this is one of those shots where you're just like, well, Pixar, you're the best at what you do. Like, it's such a beautiful, and it's, and they, they talk about this a lot. They talk about it with Finding Nemo. They talk about it with all their movies. Like, Pixar is not, Pixar never sets out to make a realistic looking movie. Like, yeah. Remy sitting on that roof and looking out at the, Par- the Parisian skyline isn't 
really the colors that Paris is. It isn't really exactly what Paris looks like, but it's exactly what we all think Paris looks like. It's what we want Paris to look like. When we idealize Paris, that's the Paris that Remy's in, and it's gorgeous. And it's the other thing I like about it, it's timeless Paris. Hmm. Yeah. There's no evidence that this is today. You know, it is right. it is a Paris that is, you know, kind of post-World War II, could be the 70s, it could be the 60s, it could be the 90s. It's just Parisian, you know. Yeah. And and I and I really, I really love that. And it's not only that he sees the Eiffel Tower and that he's in Paris, but he turns around and there is Gusteau's. He's at the restaurant. I do love, kind of to John's point about the self-aware imaginary friend, um, (laughs) I do love that when he says, he's like, oh, you led me to your restaurant, Gusteau has this really funny beat where he kind of looks unconfused, and then he's like, I I guess I did, yes, is what I, (laughs) like, it's that moment where your imaginary uh, voice is like, uh, well, I guess we did get to Gusteau's, so sure, (laughs) this was the plan all along. (laughs) And we go into the restaurant and we follow food as it's moved into the dining room. We hear waiters yelling out orders. We have cooks running back and forth. We see sort of how the kitchen is working. We see something flambé. And then the flames reveal Linguini. Mm. I think he is such a fantastic character design. He is. Oh, yeah. And his performance, this is uh, Lou Romano who plays uh, Linguini. I think the name Linguini is a very strange name <laughs> in this, but it's still fun. And then he go, we go and meet the chef, Skinner, played by Ian Holm. Yeah. And again, another fantastic design. Well, and also, like, I mean, Linguini is a great name because when you think of Linguini, you think of like a, a wet noodle. Yep. And that's kind of what Linguini <laughs> is. I mean, just his physicality is very, he doesn't really have a super strong backbone. He's not a super yeah. confident guy. He's kind of meek and he is like a wet noodle. Like, yeah. it's like, it's everyone in this movie from Anton Ego to Gusto to Linguini. If you look at their character designs, it speaks, I mean, to Skinner, to your point about, you know, that you've got this like little sturdy chef who is, uh, who, who clearly has a little Napoleon complex uh, and he's, <laughs> and he is literally tiny. So I think all of the human designs are so wonderful in this movie. Yeah. Skinner so reminds me of the uh, Bill Macy character in Credibles, you know, the angry, tiny person. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and the other thing that he makes me think, John, does he make you think of Jose Ferrer in Lawrence of Arabia? Well, a little bit with the mustache. The mustache the way, yeah, and, the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, and I lo- and we hear that Linguini is here because he is the son of Renata, mm-hmm. who is Gusto's um, Former son? flame. Former yeah. flame, I think they say. Yeah. And I love when Skinner asks Linguini how his mother wa- is, and, and she's like, oh, good, well. No, uh, she's been better. <laughs> she is dead. She's, she's dead. dead. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Well, don't be. She believed in heaven, so she's covered. You know, afterlife-wise. What a positive perspective to have. <laughs> it really is. She seems um, she's she's all right. She's where she wanted to go. And just to to your point, Michael, about the way that Linguini moves, just the way he reaches around to pull that purple letter out of his back pocket mm. and he spins himself. And it's such a in, nonsensical way to move. And it's so great. Mm. Yeah. It, he, his movement is super, super weird. Um, 
I, I also do think just on the Linguini front of it, they do such a good job in the transition of the Remy storyline to the Linguini storyline that you don't even realize that you've sort of completely shift gears. Mm-hmm. Like you, we completely leave Remy, who's our point of view character, and like focus on this whole secondary story, which I think is a really like Brad Bird is kind of great in this movie at this, which is there's these two kind of parallel stories going on at the same time. And uh, the way you bounce back and forth between the, between Link, what's going on with Linguini and what's going on with Remy is done so seamlessly that it just works and you don't realize it. Uh, and so yeah. it's like, it, it, it kind of moves in. We get all of this information about Linguini. We sort of get to know Skinner's personality right away. Um, it's, it's just really well done. What we hear is that he wants a job and Skinner, of course, is okay. It's not getting a job here, but Horst, who's the sous chef, I think, has already hired him to be the garbage boy. Who is uh, Will uh, Arnett, right? I believe. Yeah. And his design is great, too. Like all of these these cooks that we're going to meet are just have fantastic designs. I think, I think the, animators, the animator said about Horst that he was so angry and annoyed at everything that his face looks like his face has literally sucked in on itself. Cause he's so mad. So he's got like, he's got like this head and it kind of like comes in and then he like kind of flares out at the chin, but it kind of like sucks in in the middle because he's just so mad that his face is like closing in on itself. <laughs> well, um, and you mentioned uh, that we had left our point of view character, Remy. Well, now the camera goes up and up and we see that Remy is looking down at the kitchen through the skylight. And I love that. His imaginary friend asks, basically tests his knowledge of what he's seen in the kitchen, which makes no sense at all, but gives us a whole bunch of exposition about who these jobs are. You yeah, know? It's, it's a brilliant moment because it's masquerading as a teaching moment for him. But for us as the audience who don't know how these kitchens work, it's a great quick little exposition that gets us to understand the hierarchy and everyone else, everyone in the kitchen and what their jobs are. So it's, it's yeah. brilliant. It's, it's, it's again, to Steve's point, it is well done exposition because it's mm-hmm. character based exposition. Like we get to watch right. Remy kind of showing off. He's the, he, right now he's the kid in class who like did the homework and knows all the answers. <laughs> so we get to, we get to see Remy kind of showing off what he knows. And the other part that I really always love about this is even though Remy is obsessed with Chef Gusteau and thinks he's the greatest and swears by everything he says, mm-hmm. when Chef Gusteau asks him who Linguini is, Remy is super dismissive of him um, because uh, yes. he is just the garbage boy. He's, he's, he's not yep. really a chef. He doesn't really matter in the kitchen. And so in this moment, Remy is sort of um, kind of agreeing with Anton Ego a little bit. Like he's, he's more on the ego side. He's super dismissive of somebody who ends up becoming the most important person for him in the, in the kitchen, which I think is always really cool. It's, nice, it's a nice twist in perspective, isn't yeah. it? Because he was the guy that everyone was saying, oh, you, you can't cook. You're a rat. And here he is looking at this human being yeah, right. going, you can't although, cook. Although in, in this case, even though he shouldn't be as dismissive, he is right <laughs> about how badly he is right. in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. By the way, the other thing that the, the, this scene reminds me of is it totally reminds me of Goodfellas. It's like the uh, narration of Henry yeah. Hills. He's describing how the mob works yeah. and what each of these people's jobs are. It's it's to- and, and what's funny is when things <laughs> like that are done well, they're actually really, really fun. Oh, yeah. And, and, and by the way, so this is called the brigade system, and this was developed by Escoffier, who is the famous French chef 
where all of this stuff comes from. And one of the things I was thinking about a lot, I have always thought there is a real connection between restaurant work and filmmaking. And the reason is, is that there are these things that seem romantic when you see them on the outside. You see these beautiful dishes, these beautiful restaurants, you see these great movies with these movie stars that are very exciting and thrilling. But on the inside, they're made by a bunch of hardworking craftsmen who are busting their asses on a day-to-day and always behind schedule, frequently underpaid, super stressed out. And it's just, it is very much a a workman's job to make the thing Hmm. that seems elevated and romantic and kitchens, man, you know, and particularly at this time with all the things I've heard about people who came up in French kitchens saying it was abusive was an understatement. (laughs) There was tons of screaming and yelling and you're in a 120 degree kitchen. And if you didn't, you know, like the way that you stirred the eggs, like, oh, you know, you're doing a a circular movement. It has to be in a figure eight movement. (laughs) And they would stand over people and yell at them until they did it exactly perfectly right. Because part of the job, particularly in these high-end restaurants, is you have to reproduce the chef's dish exactly the same time every single time in the right timing it is not romantic and fun it is hard bust your ass work over a hot stove you know Hmm. and what's happening of course because in 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 good pixar movies you're never just doing two one thing at a time you're doing many things because as we're hearing what's going on and what these jobs are we are seeing linguini knock a pot with his mop and then start to try to fix it <laughs> no! No, this is terrible! He, 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 he's, he's ruining the soup! I love Remy's horror at this moment. <laughs> yes. Like, watching Remy be super horrified at what Linguini is doing is so funny and so true to his character. Like, he, it, it's, it's like he's watching the worst, most violent attack he's ever seen in his life. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. he's so horrified. Because it's the art that matters. That's yeah. what's important. And just as he's going, like, you know, and I love that he turns to Gusto and says, it's your restaurant. Do something. What can I do? I am a figment of your imagination. <laughs> um, and, and then just as he's getting completely panicked, he falls through that skylight and lands in the sink. And this whole sequence is just amazing. Um, the terror of where he is running, scrambling away from the flames, away from the knives, away from everything that's happening. And it's kind of a tour of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And it's so amazing that you would think they should make a theme park ride out of it, which they have. <laughs> there you go. This, this is this is basically what the Ratatouille ride in uh, Disneyland Paris and coming to Epcot this year uh, is. It's basically <laughs> a theme park version of basically this part of the movie, which is super fun and kind of a modern day Toad's Wild ride. Because it's such so. a fun, dynamic sequence. Someday I want to go to Disney in Paris. It seems like a, it seems John silly, I but like I want to. Well, John you know, went when, when we went in the Ren, it was a great time. Uh, yeah, John, and I, John and I did uh, Disneyland Paris together many years we ago when we were we in, uh, when we studied abroad together. Yeah. Um, we also, I think that was the first time we slept in a bed together was in our uh, Paris hotel. Yes, wow. but nothing happened. Don't get into this. <laughs> I assume, I assume there's, a, there's a plaque on the door of that hotel room, right? <laughs> I wish. The only thing I remember about that, because we did, we went to we went to Paris when our when we studied at Florida State. We went to Paris yeah. for like four or five days. And one of those yep. days, a bunch of us went to Disneyland Paris. But the only other thing that I remember about that hotel room, <laughs> aside from you and me sleeping together, is that we were, we were getting ready to go out to meet everybody else to go on a tour of the city. And we were like, had the TV on. And the only thing that we could find that was good was Batman, the animated series. 
but <laughs> but it was all in French. It's so we just French. watched we just watched Batman, Bruce Tim's Batman in French. And we were like, this works. I kind of it know works. what they're saying. It's fine. I think I've seen this episode before. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is hilarious. Um, and then the as Remy is now all he wants to do is escape and the window gets closed. So he is not going to be able to get out. But Linguini tastes the soup that he's been working on gags spits it out the window now the window is open again and now we get a classic choice mm. which is freedom fix the soup you know what this reminds me of this is bruce willis going back for the gimp in pulp fiction you know the door <laughs> yeah, is open fine. he stops he could leave yeah he could leave and he stops yeah. and i love I, the, my favorite moment because he throws a couple of little pepper in it throws little seasonings and i love and he's walking away and then he starts shaking his finger it's that the finger, finger. Is so good it's <laughs> so good because you see he's got an idea and he can't stop i always get uh floored by really good character animation because you really think of all the little things they have to know because you're it's not just the mm-hmm. finger i love the finger it's when I, I said to my brother the other day i was like i love this finger moment in ratatouille so i'm glad you called it out but it's also the head tilt when you do the mm-hmm. finger you also tilt your head angle it oh, away yeah. from the finger because you did when we all do it it's a thing that i don't know where we all learn but you go ah no 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 and you also turn your head away and the fact that they get it all perfect and he as yep. he's turning back around it's like you know you, you're like oh that's great acting except that somebody actually had to figure that out and draw it and, and not draw it but like animate it frame by frame by frame in the computer and it always fascinates me well and this goes to it's you know what we say over and over again it's, it's all the little things would this scene have totally worked without the finger wag and the head tilt? Totally. Mm-hmm. It, w- it would make sense, but it wouldn't be as good. Remy, what are you waiting for? Is this going to become a regular thing with you? You know how to fix it. This is your chance. And I love the way it's animated. As he's leaping over the pot, he's throwing the leaks in. That's You know, it just is, it's great. It's <laughs> great to watch. And then we get, he's just finishing up. And then suddenly, as the camera is spinning around, and just at the end, we reveal Linguini. <laughs> just staring at him like, what in the actual fuck <laughs> am I looking at right now? And I love that Remy freezes and then drops that last ingredient in. Yeah. And it's just as Skinner comes out, you know, because demanding the soup. The soup! Where is the soup? And Skinner thinks because... He's holding a ladle that Linguini has been cooking. You are cooking? How dare you cook in my kitchen? And he's yelling at him, not noticing that a dude has already put a bunch of soup in a terrine and he's heading out to the crowd. And Skinner runs out into the restaurant yelling. <laughs> and then everyone is staring at him. <laughs> the The number of embarrassing Skinner moments in this movie are are hilarious they're great <laughs> it's great they're so great and but i also love i mean it's that moment of like those doors from the kitchen into the restaurant are a point of no return mm, mm, like right. whatever happened in the kitchen like once it goes out there there's no going back you can't go out there and take it back you can't go out there and like it's like it's done and like this is the first moment where that happens where like the soup goes out the door and okay we'll see what happens <laughs> you're fired and as the soup has gone out, Colette walks over and she tastes the soup. Mm. And that is the first reaction we see that, oh, there's something special here. What did the customer say? It was not a customer. It was a critic. Eagle? Selena Claire. Leclerc. 
What did she say? She likes a soup. And then Skinner takes his little stepladder, which we're going to see many times, <laughs> and climbs up, and he tastes the soup and has a reaction. Um, and Skinner has already told Linguini that he's fired when he found out he was cooking. You can't fire him. And Colette, who we should say, again, it's another shocking voiceover. I yeah. always forget. Janine Garofalo. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds nothing like her to me. And it's fantastic. Leclerc likes it. Yeah. She made a point of telling you so. If she write a review to that effect and find out you fired the cook responsible. <laughs> He's a garbage boy. Who made something she liked. They all do a fantastic because even uh, Ian Holm. I didn't know that was Ian Holm the first time I watched yeah. it. Like I was like, who, who is this? And then later I was like, what? Yeah. Well, usually, usually when you cast someone, you're kind of casting them because you want that vocal quality. Mm. And with this, it's just, it was, it's such an interesting thing because even with Brad Garrett, we were saying this, like with, as Gusto, like everyone's playing these roles that like, isn't mm. what they would typically play. Um, and it doesn't necessarily sound like what we expect them to sound like, mm. but they all are doing like great, great, great voiceover mm-hmm. work. How can we claim to represent the name of Gusto if we don't uphold his most cherished belief? And what belief is that, Mademoiselle Tattoo? Anyone can cook. This movie is broken down, as we know from the very first scene in the entire movie. Um, do you believe Gusto or not? Yeah. And Anton Ego does not. Right. And Skinner does not. And this is the first moment where we get to know about what we what we learn about Colette right away is that she believes with all her heart in what Gusto says and that anyone can cook. And that's why you have to keep Linguini. Right. I wanted to ask a Steve Morris question. Oh, okay. When does Colette start to feel a connection. I don't mean a romantic connection, but a connection to uh, Linguini because she too has been doubted in kitchens. She too has been questioned. She too has been kind of bullied, which she references later on in the back and forth with Linguini. Is this the first moment where she's her standing up to defend him? She could have easily not said anything, but she stands up to defend him as a vocal uh, uh, in a vocal manner. Uh, to uh, help Linguini keep his job. So does she sense, I've been bullied like this before. I've had this experience when I was a young kid coming into a kitchen. I don't want someone else to be to experience that. Uh, I am so glad you asked this question. I think it's a great question. Mm. And, and I've been thinking, I think for me, yeah. Colette is the most interesting character in the movie. Mm-hmm. I think she is so interesting. And I think this is one of the key things because she has this hard exterior yeah. because she's had to. I think she, this is my feeling. Mm-hmm. I think she was as inspired by Gusto as Remy. Ah, great. I think that oh, she like that. had such wide eyed belief mm-hmm. and she got her life's dream to start working at this restaurant, maybe right after Gusto died. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that she ever got to meet him. And what she found in place of being this wonderful romantic thing was <laughs> this really harsh, terrible thing with yeah. this boss that is awful. And she has had to, suck it in suck it up to like just do continue to fight for this dream and so she's gotten this real hard edge and i think the moment that you're talking about is when she tastes that soup Mm. i think when she tastes that soup she tastes has an experience of the thing that she says later on that every recipe must have something unexpected she has the experience of like oh this is what it's about this is why i came here you know I, I think that's all true, although to answer John's mm. specific question, which is when does she feel a connection with Linguini, yeah. mm. I think – because I think you are right. I think everything you said is right. But I think what happens when she tastes the soup is still more tied to Gusto than Linguini. Yeah. So what mm-hmm. Gusto says is anyone can cook. 
So she's going to defend the garbage man right? Um, because he made soup and that soup was good and the critic liked it yep. and this is what Gusto said and this is what I believe. I think it's a little – we'll get to it a little bit later, but when, uh, when Colette kind of goes – thinks she's teaching Linguini how to actually work in a kitchen, but is actually in reality teaching Remy how to cook in a kitchen. At the very end of that scene, Linguini says, thank you for, uh, for teaching me everything. And she says, thank you for listening. Mm. And she also says that you're one of us now. Yeah. And so I think that scene, them spending that day together and him actually listening to her is when she actually connects with Linguini as a person separate from her ideals about cooking. Um, is, is my is what I think. I don't. I guess I, t- I t- totally agree. Um, and right now, Skinner is agreeing to hire him as a cook, but it's really to set him up to fail. You will make the soup again. And this time I'll be paying attention. Very close attention. They think you might be a cook. But you know what I think, Linguini? I think. You are a sneaky, overreaching little... And just at that moment, what does he see but the rat? Rat! (laughs) And man, they all go after this rat with all, like, one guy's got the blowtorch and cleavers, and I mean, they're going to kill this thing. And they manage to get it in a jar, and they tell Linguini to go take it away and kill it. (laughs) We're outside, Linguini bobbles the jar again, Tiny little bits of physicality that are fun. Jumps on the bike. I love the way he rides the bike and he heads off to the Seine and we see Notre Dame in the distance. The look of this is so gorgeous. Yeah. This is actually uh, when Brad Bird and his wife and some of the producers were in France and they were kind of like walking around and doing a tour. They were coming home from a restaurant one night and they were walking along the Seine and they they basically were exactly where Linguini is here. Mm. And they were like, man, this is so beautiful. We should have something in the movie that takes place here. We don't know what it is. And when they got back and they were working on the movie and they had this moment where Linguini was supposed to get rid because like Linguini doesn't have to go throw he could have thrown Remy in the trash can outside the restaurant. Like he doesn't have to go all the way there, but like they they were like, this is it. This is the moment. Let's set this scene here because they had been walking down and like, because they loved the, the, you know, the fog and the smoke and Notre Dame in the background. And so it's really great because like, this is directly inspired from them being there and going, Ooh, it's almost like being on location, but the animation version. <laughs> By the way, the person that they I heard them talk about the most is a woman named Sharon Callahan, and she was in charge of lighting and color. And a lot of this came from her. You know, like they, they lay out and they do animatics and create all the action and the character design and all that. And then there's this layer of color and lighting yeah. that comes on anything, everything. And that's, that's, the, that's the area for me where I feel like Ratatouille is just this huge leap forward. Hmm. And now we have this scene with Linguini talking to a rat in a jar. Don't look at me like that. You weren't the only one who's trapped. They expect me to cook it again. And the rat in the jar, as he's asking questions, he's saying, What did you throw in there? Oregano? No? What? Ro- uh, rosemary? That's a spice, isn't it? Rosemary? And we're watching Remy, who is reacting and nodding to all of this. He's cowering. He's cowering, but reacting. Yeah, because it's, you know, he doesn't know if he's going to kill him or not. But yeah, he's like, he can't help but answer the question correctly. In that well, moment. Andy can't help to be a little bit of a snob over the guy yes. who doesn't know if Rosemary's a spice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I love the fact because you have the slow burn of 
it takes Linguini a long time to realize that the rat can understand what he's saying. Yeah. <laughs> Linguini is not the smartest no. guy. He's lovely. He's a very sweet. Not the smartest guy. Have you been nodding? And he nods. So I'm not crazy. <laughs> Wait, now you think the rat is understanding you as a sign that you're not crazy? It seems fairly crazy. <laughs> and now Linguini starts to come up with an idea. You made the soup. I have to make the soup. They like the soup. I, I also love as he's sort of realizing that Remy can talk. He has this moment where he says, I can't cook. And Remy like agrees with him. <laughs> and he goes, but, but, and he goes, but you can. And even though he is near death and could be thrown in the Senate any minute, he goes, you can cook. And Remy kind of goes, eh. <laughs> and he goes, okay, okay, let's not be modest. Like, it's like, even Remy's like, oh, yeah, thank you so much. But I, yeah, I do, I dabble, I dabble. His body language is doing the dabble moment. It's so good to me. <laughs> That's awesome. And I love the moment where he goes, yeah, this could work. Hey, they like the soup. <laughs> but he sweeps his arms and knocks Remy into the sand, <laughs> jumps in after him, cut to them, him out wet. <laughs> yeah, it's a great it's a great cut. It's a really good like as opposed to like actually like seeing them fall in and having him crawl out. It's a great comedic cut where you yes. see them fall in and then you just like do the cut and he's sitting there. It works way better. It's way funnier. Mm-hmm. Um, and now. Linguini thinks they have made a deal and he kneels down into frame and he opens that jar and Remy looks up at him and then runs away. Mm. Um, and I love the way they film this moment that we're with Remy under this bridge. We're back with Linguini looking and he sighs and he knows that Remy is gone forever and he's probably going to lose his job and he gets up and he starts to walk away. And then slowly Remy comes out of the shadows mm. It's a great the buddies come together moment, you Mm -hmm. know? It's a great buddies come together moment. And usually with rats and glowing eyes, it's used Mm. for like menace or they're scary. Or like even at the beginning of the movie when we see the rat in shadow and its eyes are glowing. And this moment you see his eyes, the glimmer, like the sort of like the light reflecting off of his eyes while he's still in the shadow under the bridge before he fully comes out. But it's this actually like really good positive reveal. It's Mm -hmm. this, you know, I'm not going to run away. I am going to stay here with you. And I just think it's really, really just lovely. Um, We end up at Linguini's apartment. And I love one of the things I think they do so well is the mix of it's like garbage and art. It's, it's rats and fine dining. It's Linguini's dirty, shabby little apartment and this window that looks out onto Paris and the Eiffel Tower, mm. you know, mm-hmm. it's it's mixing these things constantly. Um, and from this, Linguini is so lovely with mm-hmm. his rat that he calls Little Chef. <laughs> I, I love the name Little Chef. <laughs> it's really cute. It's, it's an immediate um, title. Right. Mm-hmm. Because the rat's never been in, the, in that kind of kitchen before. Only made one soup. But he wants to give him that kind of respect and that honorary title of calling him Little Chef, which is cute. And it's great because, I mean, by doing that in a really subtle way, I mean, look, Emile accepted Remy for who he was but didn't fully appreciate who Remy was. And Linguini is the first person ever that understands how good Remy is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and just without even really giving it a second thought, um, completely respects him, yeah. completely accepts him as a chef and calling him little chef is him just automatically right off the bat going, I, I, I don't even think this is weird. Mm-hmm. I fully, I fully accept that you're way better than I am at being a chef. And he's the first person that's ever done this in Remy's life. Uh, yeah. 
Have you guys had that experience, by the way, where the first person that really like looked at you and saw the thing that no one else had seen? Yes. I thought I thought you meant, did I ever like live with a rat? <laughs> uh, I live with rats all the time. My house has had rat problems. <laughs> really? Since I've, oh, oh, yeah. Shit. You live in a hundred year old house that's made out of wood on a hill. Yeah. You're going to have rats. <laughs> um, uh, um, Michael has that with everybody though. Michael's Michael's Mike. You should ask the reverse. Has there ever been anyone who didn't believe in you? I think that's the, that's the one <laughs> that is wow. very, very sweet. And also somewhat accurate. Fuck you. Somewhat accurate. <laughs> I can't. Well, I, I was going to say, <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> I have been very fortunate to have really good friends like both of you who have always been very supportive of me. Um, no, I, I, I actually don't. I mean, I think like mine would be like my dad. Like mm. I think what I, what I, when you ask the question, what I think of is when I, I, somebody asked me the other day, like, when could you, when did you start drawing? And I don't really remember, even though I don't draw uh, professionally, um, you know, I draw for fun and I really enjoy it. And it's one of the reasons I love animation. And I remember my dad, um, when I was really, really young, we played this game where he would like fold a paper into four different squares and name four animals and have me draw them. And for whatever reason, like when I think of like, I knew then that I was better at this than other kids were. Like I was like, oh, I can really do this. And so I would say my dad. So there you go, Mm. John. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Mine was um, an English teacher in community college. After I'd crashed out my first trip through college, when I really didn't, I want, I just wasn't ready to be an actor. I didn't have the guts or the balls to be an actor. So I tried doing international studies because I was model UN. I thought, oh, this could be a nice transition. Way harder than I expected. Completely kicked my ass. I got into the fraternity, got into drinking, and I crashed out of college, went into the military. And when I started coming back out of the military, I started going to community college. I didn't know if I could do anything with my life. Like I really was lost. And I had this uh, English teacher, Dr. Ryan. She sat me down one day when she read one of my papers. She goes, I want to talk to you. And she started talking to me about how the way I analyzed this and the way I caught these things and other people hadn't caught it. She said, if you apply yourself, really apply yourself, there is a possible future for you here in doing this kind of stuff and doing this kind of analysis and criticism and what have you and getting into English and whatever. I've got a a show I do on public access television where I bring people on to discuss novels. I'd like to ask you to come on to be the only man in in a with uh, a four woman panel to talk about Tony Morris. And wow. so that blew me away. Um, and I went home and I, and I, I think I almost got emotional to be honest with you. Cause I really was, I mean, my later twenties, I was really lost. And he, she was one of those people that was like, I believe in you. You need to believe in yourself. And she helped me through that whole semester at a community college put myself back together, put my belief back together. And from there, I went and got my AA degree, went to Florida State, met Mikey and and my whole life, you know, and but she was the one person at a time when I was really lost who kind of got me to focus and believe again, which wasn't easy. So, yeah. Mine was uh, doing theater in college and I had directed a play, I'd written and directed a play and uh, it was getting the I, I think I felt more seen having people see my work mm-hmm. than I ever had felt being an actor on stage or anything like that. And it was, he, it was honestly hearing people. I walked out into the lobby after the play mm-hmm. and people not knowing I was the director talking about the play 
Yeah. That was, that was the moment where I went, oh, wow. you know, that's awesome. Well, yeah. because, and it was cause, cause I'm, you know, I'm very uh, distrustful and uncomfortable with praise, <laughs> you know, and, but hearing overhearing two people talk to each other yeah. about my work was like the, I was like, Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah. I could, I guess I can do this thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but Linguini wakes up the next morning, no sign of Remy. His eggs are gone. He's like, oh, I'm so stupid. And then we see Remy with two omelets, a big omelet and a little omelet. And first of all, from everything I've heard, that is one of the main tests. If you're trained in French cooking and someone wants to test if you know what you're doing, make, mm-hmm. a, make a classic French omelet. That is a really hard oh. thing to do. Wow. Also, I think it's a good time at any to say that, uh, you know, every movie that Pixar does, they're always like upping their game. And we talked about like wet fur and, you know, mm. like with Monsters, Inc. was the first one where you had hair and Bugs Life was crowds and Incredibles was humans. Mm-hmm. But like these guys who worked on this movie, all they could talk about was how hard it is to make food look good in CG. Mm. Like CG is all polygons and like, you know, like angles and stuff like this. And food is just like, it has to look soft. It has mm-hmm. to look spongy. It has to look moist. Yep. It has to look this. And like one of the guy, one of the animators was like, I defy you to make a cake look good in CG. It is impossible. <laughs> and so the fact that, I mean, and the omelets are a good example of this, but honestly pick any food in this movie. Yeah. And it's a good example of this, but it's like these omelets look delicious yeah. like i fully buy oh yeah the, i would i would let remy cook me anything totally 100 mm-hmm. percent. unfortunately remy doesn't get to eat it he still hasn't eaten anything because it's time to go and we're outside of the, the kitchen and i love him psyching himself up neither of us can do this alone so we gotta do it together right you with me so let's do this thing he slams open oh the God. doors into the kitchen <laughs> <laughs> and then the reaction. And now we're trying to make this work with, with Remy inside his clothes, repeatedly <laughs> biting him when he does things wrong. This doesn't go that well. I think like a, a, a rat crawling on your body oh. is one of those core things that makes anybody sort of be like, and like as much as you love Remy, as much as we all think he's like a great character and we are on board with his journey at this point, watching Linguini, watching Linguini's body language and reaction when Remy is scampering over his body and nipping at his skin mm-hmm. just is so uncomfortable. <laughs> it makes me like it makes me feel so gross. Um, by the way, my sister, when we were kids, had it. We had a pet rat <laughs> named Snoopy. Um, so I have had a rat crawl over my body. There's a fantasy novel. There's a fantasy novel that I read as a kid and the, they were torturing the hero. And I, I, I don't know where this came from, but I guess it's like a true thing, but like it's um, you, oh. you, you put a metal pot. Yes. This is you put a, true a metal thing. pot and you, it's a true thing, yeah. metal pot and you fill it with rats and then you, and then you attach it to the mm-hmm. person's belly and you light the, you light the pot on fire. You put hot coals on top of it. So the rat, the pot is heating up and eventually the rats will do anything to escape the heat. And the only surface they have to escape from is the, the skin. And so they basically start like eating the, it's so gross. It, it, like, wow. it, it's like a nightmare that I have. Oh my God. This is like my nightmare. Yikes. I think that might've been one of the Mongols horrible ways of killing people. The Mongols had some, <laughs> had some rough ones. Um, 
but yes, no, I've definitely read of that thing before. And this isn't going well at all. And finally, Linguini goes into the walk-in. And I love that he opens his shirt and looks at all the bites and screams and then screams and then more screams. <laughs> I love that. That's how you do it. Ah! Ah! It's so brilliant. You don't, sometimes you don't also, need words. It's also, the, it's also the he looks down at his body and screams. And then he looks up and just stares at Remy and just screams at him. It's yeah. so good. Um, and, and then he realized, first of all, that Remy's hungry. Green, he gives him some cheese and Aww. so let's think this out you know how to cook and i know how to appear uh, human and outside is skinner who opens the door from a rat sees the rat light goes off <laughs> light comes on no rat the rat i saw it it's such a great funny almost like classic sitcom running gag. It's the, as soon as this moment happens and Skinner sees the rat and then the rat isn't there, his, his conviction that this is going on and wanting to prove it so badly and trying to catch Remy in the act and every time he sees him, it's just so funny to me. Totally. Yeah. Skinner is a great character. He's so, he's a great villain, but he's also so ridiculously hilarious. But he's, and, he, and he, you know what makes him, uh, stops him from being a fully hate, hateable villain is that he? You you see the moments that he he is so insecure. He is so yeah. like you said the Napoleon complex, but also the insecurity is there as well because he's he is like Linguine. Like he really doesn't have that much talent. If he had that much talent as a chef, he could have uh, you know revitalized Gusteau's and been incredible. But he's just happy. Just let's just redo Gusteau's food, and this is what people come to know. This is an Applebee's. This is what they're used to. We're not going to change the menu. This is what they're after. But mm-hmm. if he had been like Remy, this would be a completely different experience. So he's so desperate to hold on to whatever uh, reality he has now that Gusteau has left. And he's trading on Gusteau's name um, that, you know, you don't fully hate him. You can kind well, of understand him, even though you may not appro- approve and, of his tactics. Well, and kind of what's really interesting about this movie and the dynamic, and it's really subtle, but like I think Steve made a really great point about Colette and this idea that Colette clearly is a believes in gusto as much as remy does yeah um so that's her tie to gusto yes remy is obsessed with gusto we know his tie to gusto but i think there's something really interesting about this idea that like skinner was his sous chef skinner mm-hmm. was the skinner was the right hand right. man which is right. why he's the one who's next in line and so you would think if this was the guy who was next in line he would follow in gusto's footsteps and try and be a great cook on his own yeah. or extend gusto's philosophy but instead he's trying to sell off gusto's name and it clearly isn't a believer and that remy is really the spiritual sous chef to Gusto in a way, yeah. and Skinner is and Skinner is not. You know, and I think having all of these characters in this movie all relate back to Gusto yeah. in a way is kind of really, really smart thematically. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that Skinner. This is my impression: is that Skinner? You know, we talked about this mm. craft and art thing with food and cooking, and also with filmmaking. Skinner has the craft. Yeah. When Gusteau gave him the recipe, he could execute that recipe every time. Right. He could organize the kitchen. Sure. Skinner's never going to come up with his own recipe. Right. He's right. never going to come up with a new dish. And that means that – because in these restaurants at this level, they got to be doing something new. Like there's the – one of the – what was at one point the greatest rest, – known as the greatest restaurant in the world is a restaurant called El Bui. Taco Bell? Taco Bell? Look, Taco, Taco Bell's Bell. delicious. <laughs> um, El Bui in Spain, which is kind of where the ideas that we would call molecular gastronomy came from. Mm-hmm. But they would have one menu. And they would serve, that's what they'd serve. And then they would close down and then they'd spend months researching and coming up with the new menu. And then they would have the new menu. 
And that was like, and every year was going to be different until the restaurant closed down like six or seven years ago. And that's what these really high end restaurants, they have to always be innovating and Mm -hmm. always be coming up with new stuff. And that is not Gusteau's. Mm -hmm. Gusteau's is serving the same old stuff. Well, that's why he's defaulting to doing frozen food. This is, he's parlaying that so he can have some secure money stream uh, because he can't be inventive. So he defaults to that kind of base level. And he has the arrogance to uh, uh, be cocky about corn dogs and say it's something American and blah, blah, blah. Here you are making racist French foods or sorry, racist foods and, and putting, you know, a racist caricatures of Ray, of uh, Gusto in those uh, outfits. Uh, you, you can know. just, you can just say racist food. No, I think sure. that's okay. Accurate. Fine. Racist, racist food, food is, is good. All right, fine. <laughs> but yeah, it's just ridiculous. So yeah. <laughs> but the reason that Remy has disappeared is that Linguini has put him on his head in his chef's hat, which is called a toque, by the way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we walk out. And as we're moving out, suddenly right in front of Remy, he sees dishes, a waiter with a huge, huge platter of dishes going right towards him. He pulls Linguini's hair and Linguini does this ridiculous <laughs> limbo move to get under the dish. I love the look at the uh, from the waiter at Linguini after what he did. <laughs> and Linguini gives this awkward laugh and we go into the office and Linguini asks, how did you do that? And Remy is holding his hair and he lowers him and Linguini's shoulders drop and then he lifts up one side and an arm goes up and I love Linguini's line. That's strangely involuntary. <laughs> this is like the, my brother and I were just talking about this because we were, I was rewatching Ratatouille. This is the stupidest idea in the world. <laughs> really this is. is so dumb. It makes it makes zero sense logically. It's just weird. It it like it again. It's something that absolutely unequivocally should not work, mm-hmm. and it's. Amazing. It works so well. And again, I think it's because you have this sequence where you sort of illustrate the rules. You see what he's doing. And then we go into, as opposed to just being like, okay, let's kind of move past this and it's weird. So let's just do it. Then we just like watch them do this for the entire evening. Hmm. Like they, they go home and do this all night long. Yeah. It's a, and it's a classic training montage. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you try to do stuff, fail, try to do stuff, eh, maybe a little better, try to do stuff, succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, what's funny about it, and again, it's like the, the, the skills of actually learning how to use a knife, that's like years of practice, much less <laughs> doing it while holding someone's hair. But you're totally right. It totally works. It's really fun. And then we go back to the kitchen and we see him working perfectly at his station and he has recreated the soup. Congratulations. You were able to repeat your accidental success. <laughs> but you will need to know more than soup if you are to survive in my kitchen, boy. And then he tells Colette that she has to be responsible for him. Right. Because he defended her and defended yeah. him. All right. You take him on. Listen, I just want you to know how honored I am to be studying under such <laughs> She drives a knife into his sleeve. <laughs> Ulyssa, I just want you to know exactly who you are dealing with. How many women do you see in this kitchen? Well, I... <laughs> and another knife slams into his sleeve. Uh-huh. Only me. Uh, Why do you think that is? Well, I... Because uh, Haltoisin oh. is an antiquated hierarchy built upon rules written by stupid old men. Rules designed to make it impossible for women to enter this world. But still I'm here. I think that line is amazing. Let's... Yeah. What year is this? 2007 is when it comes out. John Lasseter is in charge of Pixar. Yes. The irony of this moment 
in a 2007 film, when we found out all this stuff about Lasseter afterwards, is really just incredible. Like, in the, I stopped the movie after she said what she said. I was like, put this in context, you know? And it's just fascinating because this is, in essence, what uh, so a lot of women have a number, sorry, a number. I don't want to say a lot. It's all the perspective. A number of women have said about working in animation or working in video games or working in, in uh, uh, Pixar here as well. They had issues with having to being heard and having their stories told. Even um, uh, Jones, Rashida Jones walked away from Toy Story 4 because she felt that they didn't want to support female led stories or female stories there. And so there were issues. So I just found this to be such an interesting thing to think in context. No, it's a, it's a great, great point because it shows you how oftentimes even the most uh, on the surface, liberal woke, you know, rah, 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 everything people. Yeah. Help underdog people, help underdog people, help people who, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They just have blinders on it. And Pixar as amazing as, as Pixar has always been for the first, you know, decade or so of Pixar's existence, it was a boys club. Yep. I mean, it was, it was, they, and it was, it was a very talented boys club. They made really, really great movies and told great stories. Um, but, uh, not a ton from the female perspective. Yep. And also not a ton of females behind the scenes in high levels creatively. And I think that having Colette be this character that kind of speaks to that, that they were all like, yeah, this is a great character. But I think they didn't quite manage to take what she was saying on their computer (laughs) screens and look around and go, oh, huh. How about that? Yeah. So, So my guess is, Mike, that you watched the same behind the scenes thing on the disc that I did. Um, and there is a scene where they talk about Colette and what mm. Brad Bird did was he brought in a crew of seven or eight women to be animators for Colette. Did you, did you mm. watch this mm-hmm. thing? I did. Yes. Uh huh. And it was really weird to watch it because on the one hand, I think it's great that Brad Bird did it, but then the things that they said, particularly based on, on what you just talked about, cause I had the same thought, John, about John mm. Lasseter. Yeah. They talk about what it was like coming in and coming into Mike, as you said, a, a boys club. The dynamic of animation as a whole, you know, a lot of times you're like, oh, God, it's such a frat back here. (laughs) They said it's like seven or eight women out of 100 animators. And then one of the women says, I've developed some special talents because I work with men. One is a selective hearing. (laughs) (laughs) And there was so much awkwardness in the interviews Mm -hmm. with these women as they're trying to, in a nice way, say what it was like to come into a boys club and say what it was like to deal with what they had to deal with and how they tried to focus on this character. And I think so much of that emotion is in Colette. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they had experiences with John Lasseter. I don't know if that's what they're referring to, but man, it felt that way. Also, it's Janine Garofalo, who has been, who has made a career out of speaking about these issues, even when she was a stand-up in the late 80s into the 90s. She spoke about what it's like to be a woman in a man's world or a woman in a man's business, like stand-up comedy. So I wonder if, if she had some influence in some of these lines and some of these moments for sure. So I just want to throw that out there. Sorry. And I think there's two parts to it. I mean, look, the John Lasseter one is a very uh, clear and obvious example. Like these women kind of saying, it's really hard here. You know, you got to do things. And we know now from experience, from from their experiences kind of coming to light, that there was a lot of like, don't know. He's had a couple drinks. Stay away. He's going to get a little handsy. (laughs) But the other part of it that's the more subtle and challenging problem that came up, like most specifically with Brave, but in general comes up, which is 
there's lots of examples in animation and, and, and at Pixar where women would want to tell a story from their perspective and say, here's the type of story I want to tell. And because it wasn't the experience that a lot of the male yep. directors and storytellers had had, they didn't relate to that experience right. and therefore said, I don't think that's a universal story. I don't think that's a movie. And so without even intentionally trying to be misogynistic, without being like the obvious, like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to keep the women down. Mm. There's just this level of, I don't actually understand the story that you're trying to tell. Yeah. Um, and I think that was a, that was a big thing that happened on Brave when she was when um, when the director was removed. Like they didn't understand that a story about a mother and daughter, and were like, "Oh, we need to fix this." When it probably didn't really need to be fixed, and I think is probably not as good of a movie. But that's a whole other set of files that we'll do. Well, this but is, I do think that <laughs> this is literally the conversation John and I just had for our set of files shorts. We're talking about what it means to have unconscious bias is that yeah. you don't know you're not intentionally saying, Oh, let's have fewer women or I don't like these. You're just having, you know, you got the brain trust and the brain trust is just reacting to how they feel about what they're seeing. Yeah. I, I knew I have a friend. Uh, she's, she was running a, a studio that was doing a lot of like, anime style uh, work and she was the head of the studio, but she had to answer to these executives that were the creative executives making the choices on the movies. And she was constantly frustrated because you would have a, uh, a queer person come in mm. and pitch a story. You would have a person of color come in and pitch a story and you would have a white cisgender straight guy come in and pitch a story. And this executive who was a white cisgender straight guy would always end up picking <laughs> Yeah. The story from the white guy and not and not it, it could it could have been a blind test. He It wasn't that he saw the people in the room and was like, oh, I like this guy. He it was three very different stories it's, and the queer yeah. story and the story from the person of color. He didn't get as well. Mm -hmm. He didn't understand that story. And so he's like, mm, I feel like this is just. It always, it's always, if you ever, it's the more universal story. Mm. I feel like this is, this is the one that's going to appeal to the widest audience, which really <laughs> translates to, I have unconscious bias and this is the one that I understand the most. And it's all, it's a, it's a, it's, it mm. happens. It happens all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's an unbelievably hard thing. And it's why as John and I were talking, it's like, we need executives who aren't just that white guy. Yep. Like that, that yeah. it's, it's the executive roles that are the most important ones because they're, all the decisions are flowing down from them. Yeah. But it's like, all of art is based on this is how I feel. I like this more than this. You know, mm -hmm. those are how you make decisions as artists. And those decisions are filled with whatever your biases are. Yeah. They're filled with how yeah. you were raised. They're filled with who you hung out with. They're filled with what you know. Mm -hmm. And so those decisions are exactly, even with the best of intentions, are exactly the decisions that can lead you to totally cut out a whole bunch of storytelling because you don't get it. Yeah. You know? Yep. A hundred percent. You mentioned it before. <laughs> Let's go meet all of the frozen food versions of Gusto. <laughs> easy to cook, easy to eat. Gusto makes Chinese food. Chai easy. <laughs> we we've oh. got Chinese food Gusto who's oh. going to make it Chinesey. Um, he's got you oh, know so terrible the man. Mexican food Gusto, Italian food Gusto, and now the corn dogs. You know, for Americans. <laughs> what, what's so weird about this, because this happened just very recently, 
is the movement to pressure Trader Joe's to not have Trader Giotto's and Trader Juan's and Trader, you know, because they have all the names mm-hmm. that right. are all the ethnic foods made by Trader Joe's. Yeah. And I, I hadn't thought about it before, but it's totally th- what Gusto is. Yep. Is, yeah. you know, is we're going to pretend to be all these ethnicities, you know, to sell their stuff. Yep. There, there's also one really interesting thing that, I, that, that I've really become hyper aware of lately is that, there is the ethnic food aisle at your grocery store where yeah. all anything that is Chinese or Japanese is grouped together. Mm-hmm. Anything that is Latino is grouped together. Yep. And then there's all the other food. Yeah. And so it's like th- th- there are huge populations of Latinos and Asians in the United States. And yet their food is ethnic, whereas yeah. the Italian food is just food. You know, <laughs> all the other there's all sorts of food that comes from all sorts of places. But that's just food, not ethnic food. Yeah, I want to go to a. That is interesting. I want to go to a Japan grocery store and see if Amer- white American stuffs in the ethnic section. I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> um, it might very well be. <laughs> um, and, and this is comes into one of the key pieces of the plot is that Skinner has this plan to make a lot of money off of Gusto's name. Yeah. And then we look down and we find that purple letter, and Skinner is reading it. And he's looking more and more concerned. Get my lawyer. And the lawyer shows up. And now we find out the next problem. According to Gusto's will, if no heir shows up in two years, this everything goes to Skinner. I know what the will stipulates. What I want to know is if this letter, if this boy changes anything. And this Linguini guy, according to that letter, is Gusto's son. (laughs) <laughs> I do think it's it's a re- again it's a subtle little thing, but I do kind of love it about thematically about the movie is it, Gusto's heir mm. is the, is the term and like and like Skinner mm. is you know if there if no actual heir shows up within two years Skinner gets everything as the sous chef and if Skinner's and if Gusto's heir shows up but to your point about Colette kind of like a, being a believer of Gusto Linguini being actually physically an heir of Gusto's mm. and Remy kind of being the spiritual heir to Gusto that like mm. the heir to Gusto does show up uh, and it's sort of Linguini, but it's also sort of not. Well, you know what? I hadn't thought about it until you just said it, but it is in fact the three of them. The three of them together make up Gusto, you know, because you have the spiritual one, Remy, you have his physical one, Linguini, and then you have the person who is his follower in a lot of ways, which is Colette, you know, who knows all his recipes and is trained to be a chef. Yeah. Well, because I think, and look, I think Colette, look, I don't know Colette's, um, fictional abilities with coming up with her own recipes, but based on what's in the movie, she's perfectly happy. She is the one who wants to follow the great chef. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want to create her own things. She's very clear on that when we get to the, uh, something new scene in a little bit, but, um, yeah, like, so you're right. Like Linguini actually is Gusto's physical heir. Remy's the one that is wanting to create. And she's the one that just wants to like make the food of the great chef. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is the thing. I, I, it's such an important thing, and it is so true of filmmaking. Is yes, we we talk about great artists, and it's so you have to have that passionate, creative person or lots of people to make the movie. But you also need to have a whole bunch of craftsmen who hmm. just get the yeah. damn job done. Yeah. yeah, you know, not everybody needs to be Steven Spielberg. Somebody needs to be able to set up the lights. You know, and that's just as important. Um, and of course, the thing I love about Skinner is everything to Skinner is a conspiracy, <laughs> is that everything. Why did Linguini show up at this moment? What exactly? What is their plan? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so as we discover that yeah. Linguini is, in fact, the heir 
to Gusteau and that Skinner has a reason now to stop Linguini. I think this is as good a time to any as any to end part one of our exploration of Ratatouille. As always, we'd love to hear what you think. Visit us on our Facebook page. Do a search for The Cinephiles. You can follow the show at Cine underscore files on Twitter, The Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. Please subscribe to the show if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube, where you can leave your comments. Please leave reviews on Apple Podcasts. You can buy Ratatouille or any other film we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. And you can support the show on patreon.com slash The Cinephiles. And of course, you could reach me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, and you can listen to my other podcast, Enterprise Incidents, if you're a Star Trek fan. Um, John, how would people reach you? You can always find me at the Roka says on Twitter and on Instagram, on Twitch and the Outlaw Nation. Uh, and of course, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roka says. And then on all the t- other podcasts I do with my brother over there, Michael Vogel, the Geek Buddies, and also the Top Ten. And Michael Vogel. This is such a fun conversation. When yeah. we started, I almost said to you, let's try to keep this to one part. <laughs> but obviously, yeah, wow. there was just so much to talk about. It's been so much fun. Thank you for coming on again. Thank you guys for having me. As, as, John, as John will tell you always, uh, I, I'm not succinct. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I don't think John has ever told me you weren't succinct. It's a bit, but I, I kind of <laughs> kind of understood, I believe. Yeah, it was yeah. kind of. Well known. Well, I think that is it for this week. We will see you next time for part two of Ratatouille on the Cinephiles. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.